from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Last summer, as gas prices rose well over $3 a gallon, up from the $1.60 that I saw at some of our local gas stations at the start of the pandemic, we did a close-to-home episode on gas prices, where we looked at why they were increasing and the factors that affect their fluctuations. Today, gas prices are over $4 a gallon, down from a peak of around $4.50 a gallon in New York State this March. But it's not just gas prices that are up either. The cost of fossil fuel energy across the board was at nearly record-breaking levels this spring. And it has contributed to a trend of just about everything being more expensive these days. Although, of course, it is also part of a larger trend of inflation that we're seeing these days as well. This March, the U.S. inflation rate rose to 8.5%, the highest level since the 1980s. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine has exasperated the problem of price increases globally. Russia, of course, is a major supplier of oil and gas to much of the world, but both Russia and Ukraine are also major grain suppliers to hundreds of millions of people. And Ukraine is one of the world's leading suppliers of fertilizer. And this fertilizer issue is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Because much like fuel, fertilizer is also a major input for agriculture. And when farming gets more expensive, products get more expensive. With the frequent exception of milk, which we will talk about later in this episode. But broadly, if we want to see lower prices of goods in the grocery store, we're going to need to take a look at the cost of agriculture inputs and the cost of transportation. So today, let's talk about both of those things. Back in March of this year, I checked in again with Professor Bill Saxonis at SUNY Albany, who we heard from about gas prices last summer. This time, I wanted to get a sense of what was contributing to the incredible spike in energy prices this spring. And even though gas prices have come down a bit since this conversation, I think the points he makes still ring true now. Gas prices are historically high right now. Uh, as of the date of our conversation today, the average gas price in New York State is $4.45. Why is that? What's happening? Well, that's a good question. And I, I guess we have good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is last I was with you was in uh, last summer, and I predicted there would be higher gas prices. So it's a good thing that I made the right predictions. Bad thing <laughs> that gas prices are so high. Um we have had a number of spikes in gas prices, and I think technically they haven't quite reached an all-time high as adjusted for inflation. I think we're, we're right at that point. And you can also see some regional variations. Sometimes, uh, you know, there are three Sunoco stations near on Route 20, near where I live. And sometimes there can be price differences with as much as 10 cents per gallon just among the three Sunoco stations located on the same road within, say, five, five mile, five, six miles of each other. Uh, so there can be those variations. But 
the real culprit is it takes oil to make gasoline and the oil costs have skyrocketed because it's on it's on a world market and there's a number number of reasons for that one going back to about 2014 we saw fracking really emerging as a uh, major source of energy and it propelled the united states in being the number one energy producer in the world and seemingly that's maybe a good thing except of course there's always climate change lurking in the background which is uh largely caused by fossil fuel use. In fact, in New York State, about 80% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the combustion of fossil fossil fuels. So that's a, that's a serious concern. Well, our friends over in Saudi Arabia and Russia, to some extent, and others, were concerned about fracking and the concern about the United States taking such a leading role in energy production. So what what several countries did is they flooded the world market with oil and they drove down the price of oil. And the, the idea was that this would discourage fracking because the frackers would, would say, well, gee, if we don't get a certain amount of money for our oil, then it's not worth developing more wells and, and doing more, more work. And that was partially their plan was partially successful. And then, then of course, there's a situation in the Ukraine. And I had the honor a few years ago when I was working at the New York State Department of Public Service to actually work with a delegation from the Ukraine through a program sponsored by the uh, State Department. And they were interested in learning how to better regulate their own electric utilities. And I did a presentation for them about how to evaluate utility energy programs. And they were they were quite delightful and eager to learn. It was a lot of fun. We had uh, the translators with their little headphones and, and uh, it was quite an experience. And I have lost touch with, with, the, with the folks uh, that were part of this program, but I certainly hope they're okay. I mean, certainly the the problems in the Ukraine are really quite uh, quite alarming, and certainly world tensions can certainly spark prices price changes, uh, especially in oil. Again, because it's it's a world market for oil. Uh, we can even go back to the early seventies and our energy crisis that we had in the United States. It was essentially a maneuver by the OPEC countries to try to pressure the United States uh, to have a less favorable policy towards Israel. And at that time, the OPEC countries had enough leverage. We were importing a considerable amount of oil from the OPEC nations because our production in the United States at that time had been basically declining while our energy consumption had been going up rapidly. So there clearly was a mismatch, and it gave the the OPEC nations some real leverage uh, because of the amount of amount of imports, and it was a very ugly time in America. And truckers uh, went on strike, and oftentimes uh, their actions turned very violent, and there were shortages in stores, 
uh, because the trucks weren't rolling. Supermarkets, you know, were ru- they were running out of food. They didn't, their shelves were empty. So we've kind of seen some of this stuff before. I mean, the truckers and the shortages and, uh, and, and, and the disruption. There also is a, is a concern too with, with oil. We oftentimes think of gas prices because that's readily apparent to, to the consumer. So it really hits home, but we also have to remember that petroleum products, whether gas or oil, are used in many, many things. Things like plastics, steel, cement use a tremendous amount of energy in the manufacturing process. So prices are added on to those, those products because of the higher fuel costs. Uh, it takes a lot of energy, uh, primarily natural gas, for uh, to produce fertilizers, which of course is used for farming. And then a lot of our, for example, produce comes from California or Florida, places like that, which means that it has a long truck ride to get to the Catskills in Pennsylvania and in my home here in Albany. And all of that requires energy. So there are so many demands on energy. Uh, it becomes very, very sensitive to economic upturns, downturns, international problems. What oftentimes we would see is that for whatever reason, when energy prices went down, production w- would, would go down. But when energy prices went up, there would be more production of, of oil, and then the market would become kind of flooded, the kind of old supply and, and demand theory. There'd be more energy on the market, and that then that would tend to reduce the prices because the supply would get ahead of, of, the, uh, of the demand. Do you foresee that happening in this case now? Well, this is kind of a complicated situation, maybe a little more complicated than, than some of the others, because we don't really know what's going to happen with Ukraine and what's going to happen with Russia. The United States only gets about 7% of its oil from, from Russia. But there are other places like China, like Europe, that get a heck of a lot more. And again, the oil market is priced globally. You know, some people have said, well, gee, you know, why don't we just use our own oil? And I guess that would be possible if we basically nationalized all the oil companies and all our oil development in this country and like put it under government control of somehow and totally shut ourselves off from the international market, which probably wouldn't be ultimately all that prudent in the long run. But I mean, you know, Canada, for example, has had. Uh, you know, abundance of oil and gas and whatever, but they have very high oil and gasoline prices because, again, it's priced in the world market. The fact that they they have a lot more more oil than they actually need doesn't necessarily help them at the pump. In fact, gas in Canada is generally more expensive than in the United States because of because of taxes. I wanted to ask you a, a logistical question. Uh, if many of the countries that rely significantly on Russian gas and oil 
are ending their contracts with Russian fossil fuel companies. And Russia is suddenly left with a huge amount of oil and gas that they can't really do much with. What actually happens in a situation like that? Is it how easy is it to just stop drilling if they have too much supply and not enough demand? Well, I mean, if it's not drilled, it would just stay in the ground. I mean, it would it would be devastating for uh, Russia, you know, from an economic standpoint. If your oil and gas industry dried up, I mean, John John McCain, uh, he said something, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. Uh, Russia is it's like a gas station masquerading as a country. <laughs> uh, I mean, that would you know. I mean, that's that's their lifeblood of their their economy. And their economy is about on the same level as far as GDP as Italy. And I think it's roughly in the ballpark of Texas and one of our one of our states. I mean, they're not they're not like a China or United States in terms of the size of the economy. And and the fuel, no pun intended, for their economy is is the oil and gas industry. Um so that would be devastating, but um, you know, I mean, they they just just would stop, just would stop drilling, just like some of our uh, domestic production went way down uh, during the during the heart of 2020 parts of 2021 during you know when we're doing all these lockdowns, just kind of stop drilling, and well, I didn't stop drilling totally, but I mean, they they reduced they reduced their their production. Certainly, you know, I know that the oil companies do, you know, hold back and they also accelerate drilling and, and ex- exploration is important too. Uh, now, of course, some of these wells, they, they, they eventually run out. I mean, you tap a well and after a certain period of time, it, it will just kind of expire on, it, on its own. It will take time for other sources of oil to ramp up production to replace that element of the the fossil fuel economy that that Russia was occupying for other countries what kind of time frame do you think we're looking at to get back to a place where there is enough supply to meet that international demand that was previously being filled by Russia and do you see this as like a too little too late situation where we're not actually going to be able to end Russian contracts until we get this ramped up. And that could be six months, uh, a year down the road. Well, the European Union um, a few days ago, actually last week, outlined a proposal to cut Russian gas imports by two thirds this year. Hmm. Uh, And the short term, the plan envisions that Europe would secure a liquefied natural gas supply shipped from elsewhere around the world. Further out, it would require speeding up deployment of cleaner alternatives such as wind and solar power, implementing energy efficiency measures, and accelerating production of green hydrogen power heavy heavy industry instead of gas. You know, but you know these these things take time, and even increasing our own oil and uh, gas production, you know, it takes time. This, there's also just some logistical issues like getting people to work, you know, finding, finding enough staff and, and 
there may be permitting involved or other other issues. Um, certainly, renewables has been has been moving fast and coming down in prices. But again, nothing nothing is done, you know, overnight. Every it's not like a garden hose that you've got it on low when you're watering your flowers, and now, whatever reason you you know you want to scare a raccoon away, you, you know, if you just you just turn the turn the hose up and you get five times as much power. I mean, you know, it, it's a process whether you're you're increasing renewables or improving efficiency or um, doing more drilling. Or it's not like a store that has a lot of product in the back room and they just kind of wheel wheel it out. It just it just takes time to do some of these things. Since my conversation with Professor Saxonis, I keep coming back in my head to that point he made about it being a global market for oil. Even if we only get a small fraction of our oil from Russia here in the US, international sanctions on Russia have withheld more than 3 million barrels of oil a day from the world market, and prices everywhere are reflecting that, in part because Western nations are scrambling to fill those gaps from other sources, but also because oil prices, much like stock prices, are subject to the speculation of international traders. So if oil traders are worried about global instability, and they think, in this case, that there might be more international sanctions on Russia coming soon, which would then drive up prices by cutting off supplies of Russian oil, the traders would naturally choose to buy oil now, because they think the price will be better now than it will be in a month or two. And when traders around the world make that same calculus and buy oil now, that in and of itself drives up oil prices. And it turns into this kind of ridiculous self-fulfilling prophecy. It's one of the reasons why oil prices can skyrocket so quickly, even before the true effects of sanctions are actually felt around the world. And that brings us to our difficult position this spring when oil and gas prices spiked dramatically. But, of course, increased energy prices don't just impact us at the gas pump. They are also one of the main inputs for our agricultural sector, which in turn can lead to higher prices in grocery stores, food and hospitality industries, not to mention any other goods or services that rely on fuel for production and transportation purposes. But one of the tricky things in the agriculture industry specifically is that there are certain products, like milk, where farmers don't get to set prices. So when the cost of fuel, grain, and fertilizer go up, farmers might not receive a bigger milk check at the end of the day to help cover their higher costs of doing business. For more on how our dairy industry pricing works, check out our episodes from last March on dairy farming. But anyway, with these price spikes in agricultural inputs like fuel, I wanted to sit down with a few of our local farmers to get a sense of how their businesses have been affected by all this. So a few weeks ago, I hopped on a call with Tom Bowes, a fourth-generation dairy farmer here in Sullivan County, 
along with his daughter Erin and Erin's husband Derek, who together run a dairy and vegetable farm in Delaware County. And our conversation also ended up touching on some other issues that are at the forefront of our local farmers' minds these days, but I wanted to keep some of that in this episode too, because our chat was surprisingly emotional and heartfelt, and I wanted to share that with you as well. Take a listen. So I imagine that the elephant in the room for a lot of agricultural families and workers across the country right now, but but locally as well, is just the sheer price of of fuel and raw materials, you know, to to make ends meet on a farm. I think the price of of a gallon of gas in New York on average today was four dollars and twenty seven cents. Uh, the price of a gallon of diesel, which I imagine is even more relevant to farming communities, was five dollars and thirty cents on average today. Um, yeah. How has that been impacting all of your operations lately? Well, so definitely our three largest inputs on the farm are feed, number one. So we grow all of our own forages, but our dairy cows they eat uh, like a purchased concentrate you know, corn, corn meal, soybean meal, vitamins, minerals. We don't have enough land to grow all of the commodities that we uh, feed the cows. So we, uh, we purchase a lot of that throughout the year. And also, so feed, fuel, fertilizer are mainly our three big inputs. And you mentioned diesel fuel price. So we contract, try to set a contract price for the fuel that we use for the growing season. We use a lot, we crop a lot of land. So two years ago, which would be 2020, we contracted off-road diesel, which is a little little cheaper than what you'd see on the at the pump for a dollar and sixty-nine cents. So everything we needed for the whole season. Well, last year, so this time last year we contracted at two dollars and twenty cents, which I was a little upset about because 50 cents. I have yet to be able to contract any fuel for this year. I got a price last week or last Friday, and I'm I'm thinking the price is still about the same, but we're going to be about $3.90 a gallon. So we're not a big farm by any means. We use 9,000 9, gallons between now and October. So we're looking at about $2 more compared to last year. And feed feeds up, like commodities are up some, not a huge amount, nothing like fuel. Fertilizer, so roughly 450 a ton two years ago. Last year, we were around 600 a ton. We can't buy a ton of fertilizer for less than $1,100. And all that gets bought here in the next few weeks. So... Milk price is up with the commodity markets, but it's up about 10, 15%. Where on our biggest inputs, we're looking at a hundred percent increase over last year. So there's a lot of other expenses that we have, but everything from nuts and bolts to parts to labor, everything has increased. It's I hard to... that has resulted in some tough conversations about how to make ends meet uh, on a farm. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about your 
your thinking in that? The successful farms are able to plan for these kind of things, have budgets in place, know what your expenses are going to be ahead of time. Um, the price that we get paid for our largest commodity is milk. And uh, we, we have no say in what we get paid for the milk. It's all uh, based off of the market. And yeah, it's up, but it could it could go down just as fast as it went up in three months. So a lot of our expenses that we have in the next few months, if milk price stays where it is, will still be okay. But if it turns back down, we're, it's going to be pretty tight. Just to pile on kind of to what Derek's been saying, Leif, is most businesses, if not every business besides the dairy farm, are able to uh, pass the uh, increases of production along to consumers. Almost everyone. I mean, even lately, it's not that it's in a production business, but you look at air travel. And we saw the, some of the cheapest fares for air travel uh, until recently now where the prices of fuel have skyrocketed. But what happens with that? They increase the fares. With a dairy farm, as Derek just attributed to, was we don't have any say in the price of our product. We have a perishable product. You can't store it and hold it until the price goes up. It's got to go every day. And you basically take what the federal government has determined to be a fair price, uh, but you have no say. But everything that you do to produce that product is out of your control. Uh, as Derek mentioned, what you have to buy and fuel touches everything. There isn't anything that you purchase that fuel doesn't have something to do with it. So I just got fuel about three weeks ago. I thought I would. I don't use near as much as Derek on their farm, but we use a fair amount. And we we do not contract it. We do it on an as-needed basis and pay for it. But the price for our off-road diesel fuel that we use in all of our equipment was $4.79 per gallon. So that's over double of what we paid a year ago. And it's a huge increase. So uh, it just, again, everything that we see the fertilizer is huge. And what we can say about that is what will probably happen is many of the farmers, the crops, they will not use as much fertilizer. And when that occurs, you're not gonna produce as much of a crop. So crops are less, costs are up, and that's not a good combination. On the other side of things though, you guys are also vegetable farmers, Aaron and Derek. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds like Ukraine is one of the largest suppliers of fertilizer in the world, and it sounds like that's yeah. part of the reason that that the price of fertilizer is is skyrocketing all of a sudden. Yeah, how yeah. is that impacting you guys on the on the vegetable side of things? To that point, life the war in Ukraine certainly has impacted it, but the fuel prices have gone up dramatically over the last year and a half right. uh, prior, prior to any invasion. Right. And again, uh, LP and natural gas is the big, that's what you need to produce fertilizer. So it, it certainly was impacted by the war in Ukraine, but that's not the only reason for sure. There was other, you know, uh, uh, energy reasons that um, 
we've seen such an increase. Right, of course, and and that makes sense. Um, my understanding is that there has been a a a major jump since the invasion as well, in addition to the the increasing prices over time. Um, but with both of those things, is that changing calculuses and and prices for that matter, which you probably do have more control over <laughs> for for vegetable farming? Erin, is that something that you can speak to? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of lucky with how we run our um, vegetable business in that majority of our product we sell right here on the farm to the consumer. Um, so we can set our prices, you know, when it's time to pick the vegetables and sell them, we know what our costs were because all of that happened in the springtime, you know, from now until July or so, when we start picking, we know what we put into growing those vegetables and we can set the prices that what we need to cover our costs and, you know, hopefully make a little bit to live off of. But there's a lot of vegetable farmers that don't have businesses like ours and that's, they rely on market prices. You know, they go to wholesale markets and you know, they have X amount into a product, but they have no idea what, you know, their bushel of tomatoes or bushel of corn is going to bring that day. Never mind next week or the week after. So, like I said, we're we're pretty lucky in that we have the business we have here. Not a lot of farmers with businesses like ours, with vegetable businesses, have that type of retail market. So they rely on the wholesale market and you just don't know. <laughs> I want to just throw the hypothetical out there just to get a better understanding of, of the way the the cycle of prices work on, on these commodities. Say all of a sudden Russia and Ukraine shake hands tomorrow, it ends and, and prices come down, inflation decreases for whatever reason, prices come down again. And all of a sudden, your fertilizer, your fuel prices level out a lot more because of the kind of time delay in these things of, you know, you originally paid higher fuel prices and fertilizer prices when planting crops or when growing livestock and whatnot. Would you expect consumers to still see prices going up six months from now? There is going to be a delayed effect, like you said, you know, we're going to we kind of have to buy our fertilizer here in the next 30 days because we that's when we use it. And yeah, if prices come down in three months, nobody's going to be bringing us a check for the difference right? because we pay for it. And back to what you were discussing, like on, the, on our vegetable business, being a local farm and growing everything ourselves, Tom alluded to it earlier, but so much of the cost of what, is on the shelf in a grocery store is related to transportation, trucking, you know, what it costs to get a tractor trailer load of goods from one place to another results in a really large portion of the, like the retail price of that product, because it needs to be moved and there's a cost re involved in moving it. Where aside from driving the 300 yards from the field to our store, we don't have any transportation involved in our in our inputs, and 
a lot of our vegetables. We don't really use commercial fertilizer much at all in the vegetable business because we've got a large supply of natural fertilizer from our dairy farm. So in the grand scheme of things, our expenses on our vegetable business, I don't think will be up much at all, if any. So I don't foresee us raising any prices, which might help us a lot because everything else is more expensive in the, in the store. We've seen a huge growth in the last two years, mm. mainly two years ago, which I'm sure, I'm sure you have local farm markets that have expanded and grown and had good times the last two years because, mm. you know, we opened in early July. So July, 2020, the weather was nice, but nobody had been anywhere. Nobody wanted to go to a grocery store. Nobody could go to a restaurant. So it was like the day that our farm stand opened, we filled a half acre lawn with cars of people that just wanted to like, just come to our store and buy our goods. You know, we saw almost a hundred percent growth in our business from 2019 to 2020. Leaf, the one thing you mentioned uh, about Ukraine and let's all pray to God that that ends tomorrow. We know that's not going to happen but I'm praying that it does. But even if it were, if it were to end tomorrow, as you alluded to, that um, they could shake hands, look at the destruction of infrastructure that has occurred. And yes, the, the wheat that comes from there, the fertilizer you talked about, it's not going to be an easy rebound for Ukraine, for Europe, for the world. This is going to take some time. Um, some of the farms that were trying to continue to operate, dairy farms. One specifically was a 300 cow dairy farm where the farmer was away, away meaning fighting for Ukraine. And his wife was trying to manage a 300 cow farm by herself. They could not ship their product. They couldn't get anything into them that they needed. They were baking, she was baking bread. They were giving milk away to local people to help sustain them and i pray for them that they're able to recover from that but that's going to be such a long recovery effort i i don't know the you know when we're going to see the effects of that here subside i know that another concern for farmers across the u.s is that the average age of folks in the agricultural industry is increasing i think the average age uh as of 2017 of uh, a farmer in the US was 58 which is close to retirement age in a lot of other professions mm-hmm. is that something that worries you guys and how do we get younger people into agriculture because obviously this is an industry that we all rely on i i don't know how to <laughs> i would say i, I would say it, easy solution in some way is related to the shrinking number of farms so where 20 30 years ago there was like a lot larger percentage of 20 and 30 year olds who were farming they maybe didn't all farm for the rest of their life but in the last 10 years unless you had an established business and someone that was willing to you know put a lot of faith in you and gift you or sell you a portion of the business at a very reasonable price, it's almost impossible for someone young to get started farming just because of the 
the huge numbers on the capital purchases you need to make to get started. So it's it's just not feasible for someone young without someone backing them or with a lot of capital to begin with. You can't just get started farming. So we're very fortunate in that way. Kind of getting back to success of small farms and very smaller numbers of small farms. Basically, every farm that I know in our area of comparable size or smaller, they're looking for a way to generate income in addition to the milk check, whether it's selling vegetables, selling hay, uh, having a second job off the farm because it's almost a necessity, especially with the the seasonality or the the up and down swings of the milk market. You know, you might have a year where the dairy side of things takes a loss and, and it could be a fairly large loss, but you have good years and bad years, but we're very fortunate that we had the vegetable business to kind of offset those years and to, to help us. We, we run a successful dairy farm. We don't generate a lot of income. There's asset growth mainly in our dairy side of things. And we, our vegetable business is what we live off of. So we're lucky that we had that established business that we could run with that is now very successful. My dad has records back to when he started. So to put into perspective, his first year selling sweet corn, which is our main crop, he sold seven bushel of sweet corn in the year. So a bushel is about four dozen, which I don't know if you know sweet corn or buy sweet corn much at all, Leaf. But so, yeah. So we currently, we grow like 35 acres of sweet corn. And our biggest day last year, one day, we sold 180 bushel. So <laughs> in one day. That's a lot of, that's a lot of picking. Holy cow. Yep. On this topic of looking towards next generations and what farming is going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years in our region, particularly Aaron and Derek, it sounds like you guys have kids. I think I've seen one of them making some cameo appearances on the call here <laughs> in 15 years or however long, maybe when they are finishing up high school, maybe when they're thinking about next steps, whether it's college or workforce or whatever, how do you guys handle it? If your own kids come to you and say, I don't want to keep farming. I want to go study to become a physicist. I want to go be a doctor. I want to go be a musician, whatever it may be. I imagine that as a parent, but also as a farmer, those are difficult conversations to have. Yeah. Yeah, I would say. Um, obviously would support them in whatever that they want to do. Um, my brother who I'm partners with on the farm, he has two boys that are 15 and 13. So he will, and myself also will be faced with this sooner than later. Um, so me and him are equal partners on the farm. And obviously if one of his sons want to join, that'll involve both of us. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, we have friends that, work different jobs or don't work as much as we do. And, you know, we get asked the question once in a while, you know, how do you do it? Or I don't see how, how you work so long hours or, you know, is it really worth it? 
you know, we get asked those kind of questions. And for me, um, a lot of what drives me to keep going and do what I want to do is the, the, the satisfaction that we receive and in, in the work that we do. So we, we plant a crop and we get to watch it come out of the ground and watch it grow and harvest it. You know, we have a calf being born and we get to feed that calf and take care of that calf for, you know, in most cases, the entirety of its life. So, you know, the long hours and all the work that we do trying to do the best at taking care of our animals and the land that we work. Um, it's not all about financial gain or, you know, success compared to our peers. It's, it's more about just being proud of what we do and having satisfaction in our own success in our own mind. For me, that's, that's a big thing. But, and I feel, I, I'm sorry, I get emotional when I'm talking about stuff. <laughs> that's right. why I'm struggling. Right. But I'm, <laughs> I'm optimistic, like Tom, that our kids will, will feel the same way. And they'll just want to do it for that reason. Yeah. I'd say Derek and I both love the way we were brought up. Um, and we'd be overjoyed if our children wanted to continue in this life but if they didn't we would just hope that we they were taught enough lessons growing up that a lot of other kids wouldn't get you know and that would help them be successful in whatever they do choose to go on to doing with their life so you know the <laughs> the hard work and the struggles and just learning to overcome that will um, help them succeed in what they do choose to do. That conversation with Tom, Aaron, and Derek was an important reminder that when we talk about issues like energy and fertilizer prices, or the way agriculture commodity pricing works, they are so much more than these academic-sounding topics for news pundits to pontificate on. They are real problems affecting the livelihoods of hundreds of thousands of people. So for many small farms, a dollar change in diesel prices or a $5 drop in milk prices can be the difference between putting food on the table or selling off livestock. And going back to our conversation with Bill Saxonis, despite the drastic spike in fossil fuel prices this winter and spring that has somewhat abated as we head into the warmer months now, there is a long-term trend of fuel prices going up, and it's not looking like that trend is slated to reverse anytime soon. So it also raises the question, how do we go about decarbonizing the inputs to our agricultural sector? Because even if we put the obvious environmental concerns of a carbon-based fuel economy aside, if we're not willing to pay five bucks for an onion or eight bucks for a dozen eggs, and we want to keep our farmers in business, 
we're probably going to have to think about long-term solutions. What do we want the inputs of agriculture to look like in 50 or 100 years? What biofuels might tractors run on? Could we use geothermal energy to power a dairy barn? And of course, there is also an argument here for energy security as well. Drilling for oil on American soil instead of relying on energy from abroad. But the problem is that we already do. We produce more oil in the United States than any other country on Earth, and by quite a bit. But drilling for oil isn't something that's controlled by a central government, and neither is trading oil. Because we have a free market system, oil companies can buy and sell oil from whoever they please to whoever they please. So we can't really force American oil companies to only sell their oil in the US, and we can't force them not to buy oil from other countries if the price is right. Even with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's really hard to stop buying oil from other countries, because as Bill Saxonis said, it is a global market. So I'll leave it at that. I think there are opportunities for innovation at the confluence between our agriculture and our energy sectors. Because if we don't change up the status quo, all of us, farmers and consumers alike, we're going to pay the price. Thank you so much to Professor Bill Saxonis, Tom Bowes, and Aaron and Derek Johnson for sharing their expertise and experience on today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. If you want to check out Aaron and Derek's farm market in Unadilla, New York, you can find it on Facebook by searching for the Covered Bridge Farm Market, where they post updates as to what's in season on their farm right now. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Have a great week.